This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Duty-Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War, by Hito Styrol. What is the function of art in the era of digital globalization? How can one think of art institutions in an age defined by planetary civil war, growing inequality, and proprietary digital technology? The boundaries of such institutions have grown fuzzy. They extend from a region where the audience is pumped for tweets to a future of neuro-curating in which paintings surveil their audience via facial recognition and eye-tracking to assess their popularity and to scan for suspicious activity. In Duty-Free Art, filmmaker and writer Hito Styrol wonders how we can appreciate or even make art in the present age. What can we do when arms manufacturers sponsor museums and some of the world's most valuable artworks are used as currency in a global futures market detached from productive work? Can we distinguish between information, fake news, and the digital white noise that bombards our everyday lives? Exploring subjects as diverse as video games, WikiLeaks files, the proliferation of free ports, and political actions, she exposes the paradoxes within globalization, political economies, visual culture, and the status of art production. Duty-Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War, by Hito Styrol, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from back in Providence, Rhode Island. Today's dig is a very good and somewhat unusual dig. I've got two interviews with two different people. First, I speak with journalist Eric Blanc about the teacher strike wave. Then comes the Center for Popular Democracies, Ziomara Caro Diaz, on last week's May Day demonstrations against austerity in Puerto Rico. Before we get rolling, it's our spring fundraising drive and we are roughly 30 people away from meeting our goal of 1,000 supporters at patreon.com slash the dig. I had been hoping to reach that goal by the end of June, but because you are all incredible, we are on track to finish up more than a month early. We put tons of work into the show and then give it to you for free. And so we depend on you to ensure the long-term financial viability so we can keep pumping that subversive content into your earbuds twice a week. So please and thank you. Take a moment and go to patreon.com slash the dig and make a donation. $5 a month and you get my new weekly newsletter, which includes ideas from me and from my guests on readings that help you go deeper into the topics from last week's show. $10 and I'll send you Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. $20 or more, and I've got loads of left-wing books from authors at Verso and other publishers to send you. That's patreon.com slash the dig. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Oh, and one last piece of business. My dear friend, Jacobin editor Bhaskar Sunkara, got the URL wrong for the amazing documentary on socialism that he's involved in making. 
You can find out more about the film, watch a trailer, and join the Kickstarter at socialismmovie.com. They're 60% of the way to reaching their fundraising goal, and they need your help. That's socialismmovie.com. First up, it's Eric Blanc, who has been covering the teacher strike wave for Jacobin. Formerly a high school teacher in the Bay Area, today he is a sociology doctoral student at New York University. We recorded this interview last Wednesday, and things have been moving really fast since then. After six days of striking, Blanc tells me, Arizona educators returned to school on Friday after the state legislature passed a new budget bill. Though educators did not win their demands for full school funding, strikers felt that their action had achieved important victories, including a 10% pay raise for teachers, an increase in additional school funding of more than $400 million, and the prevention of new tax cuts and privatization initiatives. To win more education funding, educators are now organizing to place an initiative to tax the rich on the November 2018 ballot. Meanwhile, teachers in Pueblo, Colorado walked out on Monday, marking the beginning of the state's first teacher strike since 1994. Eric Blanc, welcome to The Dig. Thanks, it's great to be on. So let's, it's Wednesday, May 2nd, so let's start with Arizona. How did the strike get started? What are the workers' demands, and where does the strike stand today? In West Virginia and Oklahoma, really, the strike emanates from deep cuts to public education over years, uh, decades, really. In Arizona, the big turning point was after 2008. The recession decimated the tax base of public schools. And in response to the recession, the government really pushed through draconian tax cuts year after year that transformed what had been a pretty good public education system into one of the worst in the country, just in the span of 10 years. And so what we're seeing right now is the result of that, where educators, in response to the inspiration of West Virginia and in response to the really depth of this crisis, said enough is enough and took matters into their own hands over the last two months, have been organizing, demanding for the, re- the restoration of the funds that have been lost. They lost $1.1 billion since 2008. And so one of the major demands has been for those funds to come back. And at the same time, um, to call for a 20% pay increase for teachers because they're ranked at this point 49th, 50th in the country. And where the strike stands at now is after five days, the governor has made some concessions. The governor's talking about giving a 20% pay increase to teachers. And generally, the sentiment is that this is an important step forward, even though it's very far from what people want. And even though there are many aspects of this budget bill that is getting proposed and that will be likely signed today that educators object to. The impression I have talking to people is that they're willing to accept this and go on to fight in the really war for public education. They see this as a battle and not the end. Is it fair to say that Arizona is the first of these three strikes 
that that has, like the Chicago teacher strike did in 2012, taken on school the school privatization movement so directly. You write that Arizona has been a, a laboratory of sorts for school privatizers, and there, on the one hand, there's a huge number of charters, and there's also one of these tax credits for donations to private school tuition schemes, which is a backdoor voucher program. Tell me about the role that the ed reform debate is is playing in the Arizona strike and how that compares to, to what you've seen in West Virginia and Oklahoma. Arizona is ground zero for privatization. For people who don't know that, that should be the starting point. Really, for two decades now, the, the Koch brothers and um, a lot of the far-right groups trying to push the privatization of education have systematically focused their efforts on Arizona. So it's got the highest amount of charter schools uh, per capita and in wow. the country. Yeah, and no, it's really uh, it's three times the national average. And so what we're talking about here in Arizona is qualitatively uh, deeper privatization than anywhere else. And what that means is that a lot of these promises about privatization that are made elsewhere, that this is going to somehow create more equity for students, it's going to somehow create um, community control, that the problems of the education system will be fixed. Because the process has gone on longer and deeper here, it's much clearer, I think, to many people that those are lies, that that hasn't manifested itself in practice. And we're seeing a real pushback. Um, that being said, the government is hellbent on continuing its drive. Uh, Ducey, the governor, is directly linked to the Koch brothers. And um, just this last year, with the blessing and support of them and uh, Betsy DeVos and the, the whole apparatus of privatization, pushed through a new voucher scheme in the legislature. And that, in some ways, was the first protest against that in some ways was the first um, move in what became Red for Ed uh, to call to stop this bill. And the long story short is through a grassroots petition campaign and mobilization, that bill to expand um, vouchers is going to be put on the upcoming November 2018 ballot. So it's very much um, the Red for Ed movement is very much linked to and an expression of the fight against privatization. Even though the main demands at this point are limited to funding and pay, the question of winning those demands would go a long way towards reversing um, the kind of decimation of public education that sets the stage for privatization and vouchers and charters. Yeah, I mean, I, I know very well from my years covering public ed in, in Philadelphia that privatization and austerity and cuts to public education are inextricably linked. In Pennsylvania, you had Republican Tom Corbett, elected governor, pushing privatization via the, you know, previously existing state-controlled school reform commission on the one hand, and then, uh, and also one of these tax credit voucher schemes, and then instituting massive cuts to public education funding statewide. And the reason the two are inextricably linked is because as you deepen the crisis for public schools, especially those public schools educating the the poorest students, particularly poor students of color in our, in our highly segregated and highly unequal public education system, then that artificially in, in inflates the attractiveness, the perceived attractiveness of what the school privatizers are 
are offering, and the cynicism there is that the same people killing public schools are then pointing to privatized education via vouchers and charters as as the solution, even though they are actually the source of the problem. Yeah, it's very much uh, the case here as well. And the the question of racial resegregation is is central because charters here are disproportionately white and Asian and Latino students, which make up almost the majority of the public school system, are vastly underrepresented in the charters. And so what you see then is privatization, uh, rolling back not just um, some of the gains that were made through years of struggle for public education, but really some of the gains of the civil rights movement. Um, and the, the flip side, though, is that because of Red for Ed now, things that really a year ago might have been um, a little bit obscure to most Arizonans, uh, you know, charters, vouchers, these can be a little wonky to some people. They're not, it's not on the tip of their tongues. Now, because of the movement, everybody's talking about this. People are much more aware of um, what really was kind of going underneath the radar in many ways up until two months ago. It's it's creating a, what I like to think of as a positive polarization, a productive polarization around the issue. Yeah, definitely. Just want to underline that this is a, a state legislature that I don't remember recall what year this was, but a few years back, outlawed Chicano ethnic Chicano studies and ethnic studies programs in the state. It, it goes beyond that. The Debbie Lesko, who's the um, main politician, um, also who, who's pushing these this voucher plan. Is also the chair of ALEC, which is a very reactionary um, legislation pushing bill. The American uh, Legislative yeah. Exchange Council, is that right? Yeah, it, it basically creates model legislation and then lobbies uh, state governments to push through for the benefit of corporate interest. Anyway, she's the she's the head of um, ALEC in Arizona. She's also the person who pushed this bill. And she's also a very vociferous anti-immigrant um, politician. So these things are are coming from the same people. These attacks are coming from the same sources. And I don't think that's surprising. And can you tell me a little bit about what the mobilization on the ground looks like in terms of alliances between organized teachers and organized other organized constituencies, Latinos, students, community members, and whatnot? The first thing to say is the the labor movement here, like in, in most parts of the country is really a, a bastion of multiracial um, solidarity. It's not perfect, but compared to most other institutions in society, here in Arizona, it's, it's quite clear that this is really one of the forces that has been um, pushing more, most consistently against um, the attacks on working people generally and on uh, Latinos in particular. And so the, a lot of the... Um, ways these issues have gotten linked in the walkout has been explicitly through the union and through Arizona Educators United, which is the rank and file movement. So things that might seem small, but which aren't small, um, having the signs bilingual, all of the signs have been bilingual. That's not minor in the context of Arizona. In Arizona. um, Yeah, every red for ed sign, every red for ed sign, front is English, back is Spanish. Um, A lot of the speakers um, at the rally have spoken to questions of um, being from an immigrant background. Some of them have explicitly challenged the uh, attacks over the past years. And there's been also Native American speakers. So I think that there's a conscious effort on the part of the organizers 
to really bring together not just um, white teachers and white students, but the real, really multiracial um, education system. Because as I mentioned before, the you know the the largest single largest group of students are Latinos. So so this is not a minor uh, negligible part of the population. Oh, just to take that issue that we have highlighted and then uh, underline it uh, twice as well. Arizona, which passed, I believe it was in 2010, SB 1070, which amongst other things required police to act as proxy immigration enforcement agents for ICE. Uh, much of it was struck down in the Supreme Court, but Arizona, in the same way that California in the 90s was the, the cradle of nativist anti-immigrant right, Arizona is, is, is very much ground zero for the anti-immigrant movement that ultimately helped bring Trump into office. So the fact that this is happening in Arizona, the importance of that and the alliances being built and even just the signs being bilingual, uh, I think the importance can't be overstated. Yeah, it's it's pretty significant. And the the reality is, in most of the country, like in Arizona, if there's no political alternative put forward as far as um, independent working class politics and progressive politics, then it's understandable that that vacuum is filled by right-wing nativism. And really one of the remarkable aspects that I've seen in on the ground here in Arizona is the extent to which a lot of teachers who, who voted Republican um, and who probably have a lot of mixed consciousness on things are out here marching in solidarity with a lot of people that they might not have done that with um, just two weeks ago. And consciousness really does change in struggle. And it's, it's remarkable the extent to which through participating in mass movements, a lot of the assumptions that people had about who their enemies were and who their friends were have changed. And I think we should expect more of that. And I think it'll be harder in this context for the right wing to um, be as successful as it's been in pitting uh, workers against each other. I, I couldn't be happier that you just, just said that because it's this very pervasive liberal idea that that you change or fail to change people's politics by directly engaging their their ideas and out-reasoning them and logicing them until when it, it's precisely the opposite. M- material circumstances and actions, in this case political struggle, are what change people's consciousnesses, not vice versa, typically. Yeah, well, that's a huge point. In some ways, it's the real limitation of the predominant way people look at anti-racism. And, and one of the really inspiring and important lessons from these strikes in West Virginia and Oklahoma is, is is that you see that it is possible to mobilize folks even before they've changed their minds. And that that dynamic, um, by bringing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people into struggle, opens up vast potential for really reshaping folks' consciousness on all sorts of issues. But that is, it's a different way of looking at how you go about changing not just economic policy, but, um, you know, fighting against racial oppression, then is the predominant uh, assumption, I think, on the left. Well, yeah, and it should be a key distinction between the the politics being put forward by the left and, and that being put forward by liberals. Um, l- let's talk about what happened in, in Oklahoma. Teachers there went on strike after, if I have this right, the state's Republican-dominated government agreed to a major pay raise. But but the strike failed to win the increased school funding that teachers demanded when they walked out, and the strike ended after two weeks. What happened in Oklahoma? The first thing to say is that the fact that 
they were able to win the six thousand dollar on average pay increase for teachers is a huge victory um, before even should, going on strike right right and they wouldn't have won it if they hadn't been actively organizing for a strike there's zero chance that that happens if there's not a real conscious push towards a strike that it, it got passed at the last minute to try to head it off and it didn't succeed in heading it off what ended up happening is after two weeks um, the leadership of the union threw in the towel um, feeling that there wasn't sufficient um, organizational capacity or momentum to force the legislature to concede. And it should be kept in mind that in Oklahoma, you need a 75% supermajority to pass uh, tax increases and revenue increases, which is extremely anti-democratic, but it also sets an institutional barrier for what for how easy it is to pressure uh, really stubborn Republicans to concede anything. And this, it's like Colorado's infamous Tabor law. Right. And so it was both, there was pressure from above and there was um, pressure from below and the superintendents and people getting tired. The leadership uh, threw in the towel controversially. It, some people, um, teachers felt that it would have been possible to have kept on fighting and to pressure the legislator to concede. I, I think that's a real, um, a, a valid criticism. Nevertheless, the, the, the strike was called off. The level of organization from below in Oklahoma was quite weak. There wasn't really a coherent on the ground workplace organi organizing like we've seen in West Virginia and now in Arizona. And it, the, the real, it, it felt disempowering to people because they hadn't won what they hoped to have won through the walkout. And there wasn't a clear next step. And if I have it right, um, you've suggested that part in the past that what part of what might have gone wrong in Oklahoma has to do with wrong lessons being drawn from West Virginia. Right. The really superficial account of West Virginia was things were bad. A Facebook group was created. A strike was won. And the, the lesson percolated to Oklahoma in, a, in, in that manner. And, and I think some of the real groundwork in the organizing that went into West Virginia uh, wasn't clear to activists in Oklahoma or elsewhere. Um, there were months of preparation for the strike in West Virginia. There was conscious intervention by organized socialists with the perspective to push for a strike. They did build up actions like walk-ins, like wearing particular color on a given day, strike votes, all of those things that build organizational capacity didn't happen in Oklahoma. And the one of the effects of that was that uh, the strike was relatively weak because of that. So in Arizona, for instance, now the organizers did a much better job of building organizational capacity, and they they've made important gains. And the, the the in some ways the big win when you organize for a strike, not just through Facebook, is that one of the wins is not just what you're able to get from the government, but in in building a real mass movement. And so unlike in Oklahoma, now in Arizona, regardless of what happens with the current um, budget, there is clearly an organized, sustained movement that will keep on fighting. And that makes a big difference. It seems like this longstanding problem for the left, this this thing about kind of good organizers hiding their work, being kind of invisible, because um, that can it can lead to, you know, organizers making the sort of infrastructure of of mobilizations invisible can 
can lead, I guess, the thinking is to more a more media savvy narrative about sort of like authentic, spontaneous revolt. But then that that ends up conveying the wrong model to people who want to 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 replicate it. Yeah, it, that's part of it. And I'm thinking of like Rosa Parks as the iconic case. She just yeah. was tired. She was just tired. No, she was the I think the NAACP like secretary in Montgomery. <laughs> yeah, I think that's definitely the case. The 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 portrayal of it being spontaneous has a a certain uh, attraction, but the the flip side is it makes it hard to generalize the lessons. But there's an additional aspect which should be underscored, which is uh, conscious red baiting in both West Virginia and now in Arizona. And so what that means is that even though key leaders in both of these strikes are socialists and that political perspective has informed their ability to be really great leaders and to help lead these strikes, um, they've understandably been a little bit reluctant to come out openly with that because they don't want to give extra leverage to the right wing to under uh, to undercut their strike. That being said, I think that as the as we move into the summer and the this particular moment in the strike wave um, dies down for the summer, at least you know who knows what will happen in the fall. Those types of discussions and lessons will be more uh, easily had. This this brings me to something I wanted to ask you about is that there's been a bit of of debate uh, on the left over what the role played by a quote militant minority or or cadre has been. You tend to emphasize that role somewhat, and others part with you, I think, and de-emphasize it more. What's your take? The the evidence is really clear on the role that a small group of radicals who are implanted the workplace can play. So that's you know what people call a militant minority. And in West Virginia, if you want to compare that with Oklahoma and Arizona, the, the, the lessons are clear. The fact that the strike was organized in a certain way uh, in both West Virginia and Arizona, meaning that it was um, consciously built with the perspective of kind of like a class struggle orientation with building workplace power, uh, building towards a strike, that was not accidental. That's because the people who were leading these strikes um, were radicals who were consciously looking at the Chicago teachers' strike in West Virginia. They did a study group before the strike happened um, on how Chicago had, hap- um, you know, had taken place, what had been, uh, what had worked, what had not worked. In Arizona, it's the same thing. You have teachers who had been uh, in Chicago, been moved to Arizona, passing on these lessons. They were also looking at the lessons of West Virginia. And so these are not inexperienced um, individuals. They're, they're activists with politics, and that informed their ability to play this leadership role. In, in contrast, Oklahoma didn't have that. There was rank-and-file um, Facebook group, but without that politics, without that strategy informed by um, the lessons of the past and radical politics, and it made a huge difference on the course of their strikes. So at least if we take these three strikes as a um, point of comparison, I think the evidence is quite clear that a role of a small um, kind of cadre of radicals and socialists can play in really uh, shaping the course of a strike for better or for worse. I, I want to ask you some more about that. But first, since you mentioned the the model that Chicago, the 2012 teachers strike there provided, I think we should we should we should pause and can you say a little bit about what the Chicago teacher strike was and what you see now looking back 
six years, the long-term influence that it had? The impact of the Chicago teachers strike of 2012 shouldn't be um, minimized. In, in some ways, it was the first opening shot in what is now a real education strike wave. The, the basic lesson from that is, is simple, which is that strikes can win, strikes can happen, and it requires um, solidarity, requires uh, mass militancy, it requires an ability to go up against the politicians, both Democrats and Republicans. And it showed that it could be done in the same way that then West Virginia showed it could be done. And the, the broader lessons from Chicago really were absorbed consciously by the West Virginians, absorbed consciously by Arizona teachers and activists. And the, the lessons, I think, are very similar in all of these strikes, that you can only win by mobilizing a broad sector of the population. You need to try to reach out beyond schools. You need to actively rely on the rank and file participation to drive the strike forward. Those types of lessons um, have been really vindicated in this current strike wave as well. So returning to this issue of the militant minority, recently in, in Jacobin, you had a Q&A with Jane McLevy. And during that Q&A, you said, I think we have a historic opportunity to win a whole layer of activists to the idea that the most potentially powerful way to organize is to get jobs in strategic industries like healthcare, education, or logistics. I'm really excited about the prospects for rebuilding the labor movement with these comrades, but we will need to convince individuals of the role that they can play in that process. It's not obvious. Tell me a little bit more about the possibilities you see here. The common sense of the socialist movement and the left for decades, um, really up through maybe the 60s, was that our strength lies in our ability to withhold our labor at the point of production. And that basic insight, which informed the, the growth of the socialist movement at its peak, got lost for various reasons that we can go into. But um, the, the net effect is that right now, that is definitely not a, a, um, an axiom that is uh, shared universally or maybe not even widely. Um, I think the norm right now is to look at a lot of different social struggles as important and to not necessarily think very strategically about where power comes from, where we can be most successful. And the, you know, the impact of that is that many socialists, many radicals um, haven't focused on workplace organizing. It's felt like that it would, maybe it was a thing of the past. The really exciting aspect of these current strikes is that it shows, no, <laughs> that, that strategy is still relevant. Um, as I mentioned before, the role of socialists in these strikes was very high. And the, the strategic question then becomes, where do we focus our work? Um, there's a lot of different perspectives on what to do about that. And I think, the, for me, it's clear that education, healthcare, um, and maybe in the more long-term logistics are sectors in which we should focus our energy. And that gives us the most potential for rebuilding a mass um, labor movement. And without that mass labor movement, I don't see the rebuilding of a mass socialist movement either. So the question of strikes and workplace organizing, if there's one thing that comes out of this strike wave right now, if it's if we're able to win people in the DSA and, and, uh, and all of the other socialist groups that have grown um, quite strongly since really Bernie, if we're able to win people to this perspective, 
that would be a huge gain. And I think that that uh, in the 1930s, it took a lot of young radical socialists to help rebuild the labor movement. I don't see why that would be different today. To do some socialist history nerding out, this all makes me think of the Socialist Workers Party, the Trotskyist groups turn toward industry in the late 70s. Can you say a little bit about what, what that was and how you see what you'd like people to, to do, your your vision, how it parts from what SWP did? Okay, this is this is a little inside baseball. This is a real deep cut, Dan. Um, <laughs> the, I warned you. <laughs> I know. The, the, the first thing to say is that a, a lot of socialist groups um, in this country and, and across the world in the late 60s and early 70s uh, implanted themselves in the working class. So it, maybe it's useful to start not from the national perspective, but just to point out that really across the whole world in the late 60s, early 70s, you saw a massive resurgence in working class struggle. And uh, socialists really uh, played a key role in, in much of that. And in, in other countries were more successful, in part because the class struggle was at a higher level and was more sustained. Uh, in the US, it wasn't just the SWP, but a, a whole wide layer of different socialist groups turned towards um, industry and, and different forms of workplace organizing. I think the the net effect of that, in some ways, um, there's a continuity between that period and what we have today to, in the form of labor notes. Really, the labor notes project comes out of people who were pushing for um, really a return to working class focus and strikes and rank and file organizing. Connected to the group Solidarity. Via Solidarity, although that came later. The so, so there's a continuity there. It's not like it was, I don't think that you can say it was a failure. The The, the problem was that the class struggle for um, deep structural reasons uh, really declined very precipitously after the mid-70s. And so the, the, the impact that you could have without um, that kind of push from below militancy dropped. That being said, um, I think the positive lessons of the what they called industrialization at that time were from groups that actually started earlier and not the SWP, which made the turn later and uh, somewhat mechanically. And in sort um, of a dictatorial, like you all must go quit your jobs and go to this and that. <laughs> oh yeah. I have all sorts of horror stories. Because, <laughs> well, I have a lot of family that, that were pushed to, you know, drop their uh, jobs that they were doing and, and get uh, work in, garment, you know, I'm a red diaper baby. So I, so I've heard these stories. It was, it's very uh, kind of uh, superficial, not strategic thinking about how you go about doing this work. And a lot of that also had to do with the idea that we're just going to go towards workplaces and talk socialism. It wasn't to really take seriously a long process of building up unions and, and workplace organizing. It was like a quick fix. We're going to go talk to the workers and sell the paper. Um, and I, I don't think that is really a a strategic orientation that pays off. So speaking th- speaking of the idealist formulation of how to change people's politics that we were discussing yeah, earlier. And there's, and there's also a reality that that um, is important, which is there was a certain fetishization, maybe of of, of industry. Um, a lot of this, a lot of the strikes in the early '70s, a lot of them were already in te- in teaching in different public sector. Um, areas. A lot of uh, were led by women and in sectors that were um, gendered. And I, I think that maybe there was a certain... 
as Lane Windham writes in Knocking on Labor's Door, who I, a book that I interviewed her on a, a few months back. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and so I think that um, one of the lessons of this current strike wave is that workplace organizing doesn't just mean in factories. It doesn't just mean uh, dudes with hard hats. Um, and that lesson maybe was, wasn't fully absorbed still uh, in the 70s, but it's clearly uh, uh, the case right now in this strike wave that education, healthcare, which are disproportionately women, disproportionately um, communities of color, at least, um, yeah, I, I would actually have to check that on one. I definitely women. Um, these are strategic sectors for the workplace organizing project as a whole. Shifting gears, both West Virginia and Oklahoma strikes, both of them touched on the issue of taxing the rich and energy companies in particular. What do you make of that? The exciting thing about these strikes is that it puts at the fore the question of who should pay for the crisis, the, the richer working class people, because we've been, we've been paying for the crisis for decades now. And um, in, a, in a way similar to the message that Bernie articulated, these strikes have really put forward an alternative vision for how resources should be allocated. Um, why is it, you know, just really simple things. Why is it that you have so much, so many tax cuts, literally billions of dollars in tax cuts here in Arizona, and schools don't have uh, functioning desks and they have uh, crumbling ceilings? These really basic contradictions have come to the fore. And the solution that um, has been put forward by strikers and, and the better wings of the labor movement has been, yeah, tax the rich, uh, tax the energy corporations. A lot of these states, particularly West Virginia and Oklahoma, are deeply dependent on um, energy extraction. Why not make those corporations who are making billions of dollars pay a bit more so that we can have functioning public services? Th that is a simple idea that makes sense to a lot of people, including people who might have voted Trump. And the um, dynamic now is that the question of making the rich pay so that we can have services for the majority. I think that's a genie that's hard to put back in the bottle. And in here in Arizona, one of the really positive aspects of the current Red for Ed movement is that this question of progressive taxation has been put forward very strongly, so much so that the big next step that they're projecting after this walkout is an initiative on the November 2018 ballot to fund schools by making the top 1% of the population in Arizona uh, pay more in income taxes. There's no reason. There's no reason why that can't be done in every state. It should be done in every state, in my opinion. And if one of the impacts then of the strike wave is not just inspiring other people to strike, which it should, but if it's also to inspire uh, other states to organize ballot initiatives to tax the rich, that would be a huge political game changer throughout the country. I think. I couldn't agree more. Um, Eric Blanc, thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. That was Eric Blanc, who has been covering the teacher strike wave for Jacobin. Next up, Puerto Rico where long-term colonial exploitation has been horrifically exacerbated by financial crisis and austerity, followed by Hurricane Maria and a racist and indifferent response from the Trump administration. 
followed by more austerity imposed by a federal government that residents of the island don't control. My guest is Xiomara Caro Diaz, the director of new organizing projects at the Center for Popular Democracy, where she provides training and infrastructure support to partner organizations across the U.S., and support social movements in Puerto Rico struggling against the debt and austerity measures proposed by the Fiscal Control Board. She is also on the advisory committee of the MariaFund.org, which is raising money to back frontline efforts to fulfill immediate relief needs and to organize for an equitable Puerto Rico over the long term. That's MariaFund.org. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, and by the Socialism 2018 Conference. If you like this podcast and want to connect with other radicals in real life, you should come this summer. The Socialism Conference is four days of political education, debate, and camaraderie. It takes place July 5th through 8th in Chicago and features activists, authors, and people just like you from across the country and around the world. Featured speakers include Boots Riley, Dave Zirin, Sarah Jaffe, Anand Gopal, Amy Goodman, and many more. The conference is packed with talks on everything from eco-socialism and climate change to black athletes in revolt to debates around topics like gun violence, resisting the police, socialists in elections, and the fight for universal health care. There will also be discussion about the movements of today, from Me Too to Black Lives Matter to Lessons from the Teachers' Revolt featuring voices from the front lines of the strikes. The conference is not only a space to learn about rich revolutionary traditions and the basics of Marxism, but also to discuss wide-ranging ideas, including the social construction of gender, neoliberalism in higher education, imperialism, and disability rights. To learn more about the conference and register, visit socialismconference.org. That's socialismconference.org. Yomara Caro Diaz, welcome to The Dick. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. On, on May Day, thousands protested in Puerto Rico against this brutal austerity that's been imposed on the island, which was already causing all this suffering and then has been unimaginably compounded by, by Hurricane Maria. And can you tell me about what happened yesterday on May Day and why people were protesting in the streets? I think May Day, similar to many other places around the world, um, has become an important date, not to commemorate, but to um, expand and deepen the fights that we're in against, in our case in Puerto Rico, colonialism, capitalism, patriarchy, um, and the intersectionality of these issues. So the last two years, May Day has become a much more uh, militant event. Um, where beyond celebrating, you know, putting in under quotations, a date that we know historically, it has become a date that has started to have a deeper significance in terms of moving people into action for the things that are happening in present day. And for people to have some context, the list of austerity measures and political decisions and uh, abuse of power that has been going on in Puerto Rico is difficult to name in just one 
interview like this, right? But from more than 200 schools closed after Maria and before it, more than 100 schools also closed. Um, retirement plans being um, threatened now by a fiscal control board that was also imposed two years ago. That fiscal control board was imposed supposedly to fix, quote unquote, a debt, a $172 billion debt, which was created by politicians and 1% um, representatives uh, of Puerto Rico, but also of the U.S. system, both economic and political, that have been exploiting Puerto Rico for more than 100 years for its capital, its people, um, and extracting wealth from it. And so all of these measures that are being justified to be applied um, have been building throughout the last couple of decades. And I would dare to say even um, since the moment we, be, we were invaded by the United States. Um, but in the last couple of decades, they have really built up to a level that it is unsustainable for, any, for people to really live with dignity in Puerto Rico. Um, and so yesterday was a day for, that thousands and thousands of people took action um, and are demanding action, a, a different solution or different alternatives to what are being presented and are losing fear of what it means to demand these things on the streets. And what was the police response? The governor, of course, blamed protesters for sparking clashes. The reality is that um, the police of Puerto Rico has a, a history of abuse. And as a matter of fact, um, there was a civil rights lawsuit um, against the police of Puerto Rico that basically uh, has required an oversight process and reform, quote unquote, again, um, process of the police. So I think it's arguably one of the most brutal and corrupt police departments in the United States, if not the most. Oh, for sure. And um, it is also a learning from some of the most corrupt and violent systems like the NYPD. Right. So the reform yes. has been a way of how do we systemize, systematize this violence into a way that looks official and original. The reality is that yesterday there was a group of, of protesters that traced a, a plan to march through what is called in Puerto Rico the Golden Mile. And the Golden Mile is the business sector of Puerto Rico. It's where all the big banks are. And so to give you uh, an idea, right, some of those banks own 10, 15% of the Puerto Rican debt. And when I say own is that they lent money to the government of Puerto Rico with 10, 15, 20% interest rates that they are now getting paid back through these austerity measures. But in addition to that, presidents of banks like Banco Popular, Richard Carrion, have been a part of public commissions to defund public services, to uh, apply emergency fiscal plans. So not only has he held a role in the private sector, people like him, but they've also held roles in public um, commissions created by governors who respond to private interests. So the march yesterday, I was there when we were marching and demanding to march through the streets and the streets that we picked to march through for a very specific reason, similar to where why Occupy Wall Street occupied Wall Street, right, and made a statement. And the police intervened with that marching plan. And in that process, there was a, a negotiation process between protesters and police who were literally blocking the last place that the march was able to get to was right in, right before Banco Popular's 
um, building, which last year on May 1st was um, some of its glasses were, you know, were partially destroyed through the protest. And this bank has a lot of control and has a lot of influence in Puerto Rico and the public policy. So I think what we saw yesterday was a police force that, and a government that uses the police to show force, to show violence, to um, implement fear so that people don't come out to actions. Um, And to defend the very financiers who have their boots on the Puerto Rican people's necks. Of course. Of course. But the sad thing is that the police of Puerto Rico is poorly paid, poorly resourced, and most of them also have are dealing with all of the issues that those of the people on the streets are dealing with, right? There's kids, there's kids, schools are closing, their pension plan or retirement plans are at risk, if not already unexistent. They don't get paid over time. And as a matter of fact, a couple of months ago during Christmas, there was a blue flu in Puerto Rico where um, police officers didn't go to work. And in the end, it's also being strengthened by militarization tactics Um, new units. And the government of Puerto Rico, instead of investing in education, instead of investing in health, instead of investing in rebuilding homes and and reconnecting the electrical grid, they are investing in having a police force that can take the streets with protesters and interfere and make sure that they don't come together. I think another important piece is if we were able to see an aerial picture of yesterday's protest, we would have seen that there was close to eight marches coming from different places to convene in the business sector. And the police, what they did was interfere with those groups coming together. Um, and I think now it's it's bounce, It's sort of having the opposite response. I think a lot of people in Puerto Rico are mad about what happened yesterday. A lot of people are uh, outraged. And just the fact that we're having this conversation is a product of those decisions. So if they thought that by interrupting us from coming together yesterday in action, they would interfere from this movement becoming bigger, I think it's the complete opposite, right? Repression is something that um, helps movements confront their fears, like their differences. And also it it helps people visualize visualize for people, why is it um, that places like Puerto Rico Um, have it so difficult fighting back on austerity measures. Before we get any further, if you could just give a a brief overview of the current austerity regime in Puerto Rico, how it operates, what's been implemented so far, and what new measures are coming down the pipeline? So it's, it's a complex set of policies, but I would mention in terms of a structure for people to be able to visualize um, the government of Puerto Rico has a similar infrastructure than um, a government in another state where you have an executive branch, a legislature, and a judicial branch. The difference is that the government of Puerto Rico it responds to policies that are implemented, decided in Congress, but they don't have power to decide over. And in addition to that, um, Congress created in 2016 a new body, which is called the Fiscal Control Board. It's made up of six white men and one white woman. And when I say white is that people are like, well, they're Puerto Rican. Yes, they're Puerto Rican and they represent a certain, uh, the 1%, a certain class and certain interests, which for us is the equivalent of being white. 
Um, and Latin Americans body, are, are not homogenous, either in terms of class, by no means, or in terms of, of race. Of course not. Of course not. And so our conversation, that's a different topic. But when we talk about um, that board being white, that's what we refer to. So this board has powers basically over the budget of Puerto Rico. It has powers of the elimination, like policies, lawmaking, everything. So put it this way. Anything that the government of Puerto Rico wants to approve, this board can either accept or return to be revised to their convenience. And um, the All governor pretense Rico, that this is not a colonial situation is is now no, is now gone. <laughs> um, no, of course not. But this is it's a new it's it's a mix between a colonial um, our colonial history and sort of deepening those structures of colonialism and the juntas, right? The we call it in Puerto Rico a junta control fiscal, um, similar to what has happened in Latin America. Um, and so that board makes the most important decisions in terms of policy. And that includes from deciding that the University of Puerto Rico needs to be restructured um, and made smaller. So they're recommending the elimination of campuses and they're tripling the cost of studying at the University of Puerto Rico starting in August. Right. Um, just for people's context, the University of Puerto Rico is the best university in Puerto Rico. It's the most inexpensive and it's public. In addition to that, um, local agencies like the Department of Education are being run by people who are also impl implementing violent agendas against the people of Puerto Rico. Julia Kelleher, another a way of how colonialism looks like, a consultant from Washington, D.C., an American woman who knows nothing about Puerto Rico, um, who knew nothing about the Department of Education except for some contracts that she had working for them, is now running the Department of Education of Puerto Rico. A woman who can barely speak Spanish, does not understand the culture, and has been extremely disrespectful, and that we demand immediately her stepping down from her role. And that is one of the biggest demands from the movement for public education. She is... And as you mentioned, they've, they've already closed, I think, 179 schools last year, and now there's a plan to close, I think, roughly 280 more? Yes, 283 more schools. Um, so in the context of Post Maria where the government didn't show up for education, it didn't show up for water, it couldn't show up for electricity because it's in debt and because it also doesn't respond to the people. Um, this woman is recommending, not only recommending, she's approved, the legislature has approved a um, education uh, reform that includes charter schools and valets um, for students to go to private schools instead of public schools. So those are like some of the biggest measures. Third, then you have the electricity company which has struggled for decades to get enough money to keep its um, infrastructure up to date. Um, it's one of the agencies with the biggest amount of debt. And so when you look at those governing structures of agencies like the uh, Electric Authority Company, a lot of outside influence there. And that company is now being privatized. And so it's no surprise also because the current governor, Ricky Rosselló, is the son of a governor um, a previous governor who also um, led a strong privatization agenda, particularly with hospitals. And so we're seeing sort of the extension of that. And then if we add to this um, the debt, and which is being negotiated outside of Puerto Rico, right? It's being decided in a courtroom in New York with um, influence um, and lobbying and 
intents of pushing an agenda from all the sectors, of course, that have power and have some type of interest in the outcome of that. And right now, what it looks like is our constitution, it's um, the way it's being analyzed and moved is that the the interests of bondholders and people who are, we, we quote unquote, owe money because I would say, I don't owe money to any of those people. I didn't make these um, these agreements and we don't have a public audit, which is, has also been a demand that we need a public audit of the, uh, finances of the government, because in the end, there are people who are responsible for the fact that we are at this level in debt. All that comes together means you don't have money to run a public system that is effective. You have a history of neglecting public systems like schools and hospitals and electricity. You're using that neglect to justify privatization of all of that. And then you're using post-Maria context that people are at a level of vulnerability that even going to an action is, an, is something that requires them to step out of the fake normality that has been established. And then on top of that, you say that protesters throwing rocks, which is the governor's narrative, is in some way something that um, is is the representation of violence. And um, the reality is that people in Puerto Rico have been dealing with violence at so many levels, so many levels, um, that what happened yesterday is um, that most people went out into the, into the streets to act and to see each other and to some of them to take militant action is, doesn't even come close to the amount of justice that people need with everything that they're going through. And when you say fake normality, I assume that you're talking about the downtown business district and tourist areas in El Viejo San Juan um, kind of being open for business and having an air of uh, of normality while so much of the rest of the island is, is, is suffering under this austerity and more than 135,000 Puerto Ricans, according to the the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College, according to a March study they released, have left the island to move stateside since the hurricane. So there's nothing normal exactly. about what's going on. Well, or maybe it's all too normal. <laughs> it, it, maybe it's all too normal, but it's not okay. <laughs> it's not okay. And when I say the normalization is that um, some of, one of, for example, one of my friends was arrested yesterday. He still doesn't have electricity. He's been wow. working as a community organizer in a community in Umacao in a mutual support space where they've been basically setting up infrastructure to guarantee that people can eat that people have electricity, that people have clean water. And those are the people who were on the streets yesterday. And those are the people who, they know there is no normality right now. But there is an intent to act as if everything's okay. Um, and the governor of Puerto Rico, when he minimizes um, what happened yesterday um, to justify the use of excessive force in an action that is being planned for weeks and that everybody knows of that's happening and that the police decides to interfere with people coming together with each other and literally block the march. That I think was a provocation, like a provoking of the crowd. Um, and, and in a way it, it, it takes us away from the central topic, which yes, there is police brutality in Puerto Rico. There is a, 
real threat to exercise and freedom of speech. But really, the biggest threats is all the reasons why we need to take the streets. And those are the topics that we continue to act as if they were normal. And definitely for millionaires who are moving to Puerto Rico and for private companies that are coming to make money and for the new private public agencies that are being created with our money, for all those people, it's a great new normality. But for the working class, the poor people of Puerto Rico who are to the majority, um, it's not, and it's not acceptable. And I think yesterday only strengthened the fire of people who are ready to fight to live with dignity. Say a little about this just astoundingly large exodus of people, more than 135,000 from the island. The the impact that it's having on the island, its political economic future, the impact it's having on the people leaving, and the impact it's having on the people left behind. I definitely think that uh, Puerto Rico, like any other nation, has a geography. Um, That also doesn't mean that Our nation is just the people who live in Puerto Rico. We've had a history of migration since 1898 when we were invaded. There have been different um, generations of people who have left Puerto Rico because when you live in a place that interferes with your right to make decisions, to self-govern, it is difficult to stay around, particularly for people who are most impacted. So I think... um, there is definitely need to be a project of returning, right? And there is a lot of people who are, have left and are also counting on us and the people in Puerto Rico and themselves to figure out ways to protect Puerto Rico for the people of Puerto Rico. I think the agenda that we're fighting against and that we need to name and visualize is that since 2006, the government of Puerto Rico, and when I say this, I really mean the political parties that represent the 1% that are making money off of Puerto Rico and have a business agenda with the use of Puerto Rico, had been moving this sort of luxury tourism slash multi-million dollar homes. Slash Bitcoin cryptocurrency weirdos. Yes. <laughs> yes. So Puerto Rico obviously, as an island in the Caribbean, which has beautiful beaches and beautiful natural resources, looks like a great place for a new tax haven for multimillionaires. Why? Because for the past 30 years, we've been a tax haven for pharmaceuticals. But globalization changed all of that. It changed the way the economic system works. It changed who makes money and how. And so since 2006, you can look at presentations of the government of their strategy. There's been a push to move policies that make it easier for millionaires to move to Puerto Rico without taxes, like laws 20 and 22, which are pretty well known. Um, All of these incentives for Bitcoiners, there's more than 400 tax exemptions that the government has no information on the returns for them. So what is happening in Puerto Rico is not a new political and economic agenda. It is the extension and deepening of an agenda that has been revised and rethought and re- and rolled out since 2006 particularly. And it's an agenda about turning Puerto Rico into a luxury island for millionaires to visit, own a home, move out whenever they want, come back. There is no interest in this being a country. And because there's no interest in there being a country, there's no 
interest in politicians really worrying about people having to live, being able to live here, which means it has to be our goal to help people return to the island, help people rebuild so that this still is our home, not the home, not an economic property for a private wealthy sector of the world. I think that's such an important point because even as it's so important that we fight for the rights of migrants and the rights of people to migrate into free movement, there is an equal right that often doesn't get as much attention to stay put and to not be subject to political economic structures or violence that that, that forces or coerces people into moving. Yes, I think. And I think this is really important because you know, one doesn't exclude the other. And in the context of places like Puerto Rico, but many other places around the world, yes, we have, we don't believe in boundaries, you know, like um, people in movements, like we don't believe in, in separation, right? We believe in people having the freedom to move around and that we live in this world together. We breathe together. We depend on each other and we're look, we're doing this work to really build a different way of living in the world, which also includes eliminating those boundaries, but, and that also includes eliminating the violence that leads us to move. And so just like, I think it's important that Puerto Ricans who are arriving in cities around the United States and looking for help and need the support of groups on the ground there to find a home, to find their kids a school, real justice for a place like Puerto Rico requires also that we think about How do we make sure that if that family wants to come home, because everybody wants to go home, whatever you call home, if it's a physical place or not, should have a right to do so. And if we don't include that piece in the narrative and in the work, then really what we're doing is facilitating um, the way capitalism moves, right? It pushes our people out of its communities. It pushes people out of its countries. And we facilitate that relocation, um, which in many, for many people is like, I want to move and stay away. But I think for a lot of Puerto Ricans, I want to, they want to be home. They just didn't have a choice. My last question, where does the struggle go from here, both on and off the island? I think the struggle, um, goes toward building, uh, supporting movements that have been doing work for years, right? That includes, you know, uh, movements like the student movement of the University of Puerto Rico, groups like the Feminist Collective in Construction, groups like the groups called Se Acabaron Las Promesas, Promises Are Over, um, organizations like Taller Salud that do feminist community, um, a feminist organization Puerto Rico does community organizing. Um, so I think the work looks like strengthening the bases of groups and collectives that have been doing this work for a long time. And I really think that um, this, these next years will be key in setting precedent in terms of lifting up a place like Puerto Rico, which maybe two or three years ago, it was very difficult, for example, to get this level of attention internationally after May 1st. We've been, we've been dealing with, I think when you asked me the first question about yesterday, there's a part of me that's enraged. There's a part of me that, yes, it's sad. And then there's a part of me that's used to it, right? That I go to an action and I know 
what happens when groups start to symbolize a political force um, that can threaten the status quo. And so I think in that sense, I'm excited. I feel like the moment that you become a target for government and repression, it's because you're doing something well. And so I think there's a lot of groups in Puerto Rico doing something well. And I think the um, next couple of years are about winning small fights that are big for the movement. Um, and so really thinking about the fights that are going to happen geographically around issue. Second is integrating the diaspora community in supporting those demands that are coming from Puerto Rico. Um, and third, I think there's a big piece of the conversation around land, about the return of people to Puerto Rico, about the protection of the land that we have, um, and using, um, and, and of course, I think the rebuilding post-Maria, um, I think will last maybe 10, 15, 20 years. And so I think the struggle will look much different in this context. Um, and so I personally would love to, we're in conversation and I would love to hear from a lot of the people um, organizing on the ground about what they think after yesterday, particularly. Um, but at least I feel, I feel hopeful. I feel like a lot of people have lost fear, you know, and we're at the point where um, we're at a key moment. So it's either now um, or now. And I think a lot of the work that's happening um, is reflective of that long-term perspective, but with short-term um, victories. Xiomara Caro Diaz, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much and to everyone who was listening. Xiomara Caro Diaz is the director of new organizing projects at the Center for Popular Democracy. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that lots of content is the right amount of content, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please take a moment to leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also helps introduce us to new listeners is you telling your friends, family, total strangers about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And also, do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks a month is a big help. Mm-hmm.